Acts 9, Part 1, from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Peter on. Hey Metro, have you ever had a moment with God, I call it a God encounter, where the encounter was so intense that you knew that your life would never be the same, that that encounter with God would literally transform the trajectory of your life. Have you ever had a moment like that? I still remember about 13 and a half years ago, I took a team out from our church. We just got started as a church plant and we went out, about eight of us went out to South Africa. And we went to an area called KwaZulu-Natal and didn't know anything about it, but had a heart to go and see what God was doing in South Africa. We attended the countryside, we call it the valleys, where the rural people live. And uh, our hearts were so overwhelmed because it was the very first time that I finally saw what poverty was really doing uh, to the people of KwaZulu-Natal. It was the first time I saw what the AIDS pandemic looked like. Half the population of the people in KwaZulu-Natal had AIDS. And so I, I smelled death, I walked into people's homes. It really, really deeply impacted me. I saw people my age dying. I saw babies dying of poverty-related causes and AIDS and HIV. I saw older folks like my parents' age dying of that disease. And it just tore my heart apart. And we were in an area called Tugula Ferry, and I'll never forget this. But in that area, that's where God just really spoke to me and said, Peter, these aren't just African people. These aren't just black people. These are your mother your brother, your father, your sister, your children. And I want you to do whatever you can to serve my people the best you can. And through that bird, Zamele, in which we support and we connect with, but the fire that was lit within me 13 and a half years ago continues to burn so bright within my own heart today. I just returned from South Africa last Sunday. We had a fantastic time out there. I'll share a little bit more about that in the next coming weeks and even today. But it was great to see what God is truly doing. And we as a church, we're so privileged to be a part of something like this because there are people, there are men and women in the thousands that are standing on their own two feet, that are not experiencing the devastating blows of what poverty can do in their lives. And they're standing and they're leading their neighborhoods, they're leading their people, and they actually care about making a difference in their own community. Such an amazing thing that's happening out there. But I knew that 13 and a half years ago, that encounter, would change my life forever. Today, as we continue in the book of Acts, we're going to meet Saul the Pharisee. He encounters Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and it was an, it was an encounter that would literally transform his life forever. That the trajectory of Saul's life would be transformed forever, so much so that his name is transformed to Paul. We know him to be Paul the Apostle. He authors the majority of the New Testament, and without his contribution to the church early on, we may not be here today in this room because he was the apostle for the Gentiles. And if you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. And so the ministry of Paul is so important. We are all descendants of his ministry. And we're going to encounter, we're going to look at this encounter that he had with Jesus Christ. And what we're going to grab from it is that we have to position our lives in a way where we experience God in the way Paul did on Damascus. That we have to center our lives in such a way where we experience those God moments, those significant moments in our lives where we know that it's going to change the trajectory of our life. 
that we can't just expect it to be just one experience in a lifetime, but that it needs to be an experience that happens over and over and over in our lives. Because the saddest thing about us, honestly, if we're going to be real truthful about it, that I see with a lot of Christians, is that we just kind of come in church, we kind of just do the ebb and flow of what it means to be a Christian, but we don't position our lives in a way where God could move and speak to us regularly the way we're going to see what happened with Paul on the road to Damascus. And so how do we do that? Because if we don't, you know what sets in? Complacency. And this faith that you and I sort of hold on to becomes just a religion rather than a vibrant relationship. And I'm just like you. I've struggled in my faith just the way you have. I continue to do it even to this day. I'm trying to figure things out myself every single day. And I'm going to share a little bit about that as well. But we have to get, we have to, get to a place in our lives where we allow God to literally take his hand, reaches out into our soul, and shakes us once in a while to remind us of who he is. Because if we don't do that, then this faith in God just becomes more of a religion than it does a relationship. How do we position ourselves in a place where we experience moments with God that will literally transform our entire world? Paul experienced this in Acts chapter 9. And we're going to take a look at that story and we're going to extract a few principles and how we can position ourselves in that way. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 19. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So remember, the, the church was scattering. The Hellenistic Jews were scattering. Why? Because Paul and his people were abusing the Christians all over Jerusalem. And so they left. And so he says, yo, give me permission now to go to Damascus and find these Christians and I'll bring them back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and put them in prison. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias... Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and heard the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. God, I pray that you would just help us to see this passage the way you would want us to see it today. I pray for all of us in this room, God, that somehow today we would be able to experience your presence, penetrate our hearts. And for those in this room that needs to be shaken by you, to wake up, to know who you are, to be reminded of your greatness, your love and your mercy that flows from heaven all the time. I pray, God, that they would be able to live into that today. Lord, I pray that this would just be no ordinary Sunday, that we just go through the motions, but rather it would be a deep, authentic engagement with your very presence. And so I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, I pray that it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said... Amen. And so what we find here in this passage is that we find that Saul is a very zealous person. Saul was a Pharisee. He loved God by obeying the Mosaic laws. He believed deeply in the laws. He believed deeply in the sacredness of the temple. Those two things were the primary tenets of the Jewish faith. Now here is this movement of Christianity where it's trying to diminish the value or the integrity of those two key things that makes up the Jewish faith. The sacredness of the temple, also the sacredness of the Mosaic law laws. And so because he felt like it was such an imminent threat to his faith, he got authority from the high priest to go into arrest, to put into prison, to physically abuse, and yes, even be a part of killing Christians for their faith. He was passionate about it. He was a zealot in every way. And what we find out from this passage is simply this, beware just of your passions. Beware just because you're passionate about something. Because what Paul thought he was doing was the very work of God. But what was he doing at the end of the day? The work of the devil. He was participating in dividing the church and trying to diminish and destroy the very movement of what Jesus Christ came and died for and resurrected from the dead. So you need more than just passion, right? And Paul learned that the hard way. As he was heading on the road to Damascus and as he was journeying there, he experienced Jesus on the road to Damascus. And what he discovers is something that he began to do, he started doing for the rest of his life. And this is what you and I must learn to do. Because as we come to church on Sundays, as we live our lives every day for God, there is a posture or or, or a decision that you and I have to make every single day of our lives if we want to experience God moments so significantly and so regularly in our lives so that we experience him in ways where we know that in the end, we're never going to be the same. That we're never going to be the same. What is the one thing that Paul learned on the road to Damascus? That we have to surrender ourselves to the very lordship of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That you and I have to learn to surrender ourselves to the very lordship of Jesus Christ. What that simply means is that you and I come to recognize that there is no other greater authority on the world, in the planet, in the universe than the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen? There is no other greater authority. There are a lot of other competing authorities. I will give you that. But there is no other greater authority than the authority of Jesus Christ. Because if you and I begin to believe in this, what we will begin to believe in is that there is a God out there in the world that believes in you more than you believe in yourself. And that you will stop using your limitations 
to be an excuse to exempt yourself from doing the things of God because perhaps maybe it is because of your limitations that God is calling you to rise up and to remind you that he believes in you more than you could ever believe in yourself so that you could begin to soar on wings like eagle and begin to fly and live a life of tremendous freedom, hope, and peace. That is a life I believe that God has for all of us, but it doesn't happen if we're not willing to surrender ourselves to the authority of his lordship over our lives. Paul learned this on the road to Damascus. He experienced Jesus in a way that he had never experienced. And from that point on, he knew that it wasn't just passion and zeal that's required, but it needs to be deeply connected with him surrendering himself to the very lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we do that and we have passion and we surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you become an unstoppable force to be reckoned with by to establishing God's kingdom here on earth. And so whose authority do you bow down to today? Whose authority do you surrender to today? Do you realize that God, one of the ways in how he created us is for us to worship him? for us to naturally bow down or to surrender ourselves to certain authorities. And we do it very naturally. It's not an unnatural thing for us. But what authority are you bowing down to today? What authority are you surrendering yourself to? Is it your parents? Even to this day, you're surrendering yourself to the authority of your parents. Now listen, let me just be honest here. Your parents do have authority over your lives. Some of you need to pay more attention to it because you don't. You don't look to them and you don't give them that authority but you're an adult now. You're a man and you're a woman of God. And God needs to have more authority than your parents now. And you need to get to a place in your lives because for some of us in this room, you are doing careers that you never wanted to do, but your parents told you to do it. And it's destroying you. Or maybe they didn't directly tell you it, but you're doing it because it's lucrative for you. It's successful but yet you're dying a slow death even inside. Are you surrendering yourself to the wrong authority? Even your own parents, they've invested so much in you. And I get that, you wanna honor it, but that's not the kind of suffering that God is inviting you to be a part of. Are you surrendering yourself to the authority of your spouse? Whatever they say, now there is, it's very important that there is mutual submission and authority to our spouse. You have to learn to do that. But can I just tell you this? You cannot love your spouse the way you may want to love them unless you surrender yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's impossible for you to love your spouse with your own human strength. We are so broken, so finite in our ability to love, especially with unconditional love, that we desperately need to tap into God's love for our spouse. We need to surrender to his authority so that we can do that. Do you bow down to that? Do you bow down to the authority of your children? Do you? Your children have more authority even than you that you have a schedule for their lives because you wanted to grow up to be this great person, to be successful, to go to the certain schools. And so their schedule is so intense and you surrender yourself to, their author- to the authority of their schedule. That there could never be any compromise in their schedule because you are rearing them up to be certain kinds of people and you surrender yourself to the authority of that, to the authority of the success of the American dream. Do you do that? It's a dangerous place to be. Do you surrender yourself to the authority of your boss? And I know you got to kind of do it because you might get fired if you don't. But if it compromises your Christian faith and the integrity of your Christian faith, maybe you got to think about something different. Because if your boss is compromising your integrity of your Christian faith, you got to take that seriously, Metro. Because you're not surrendering yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ if you allow your boss to surrender your integrity of your faith in Jesus? Do you surrender yourself to the authority of your desire for human approval? 
That's an authority. That's a major authority, wanting acceptance, wanting the approval of other people. Do you bow down to that? And every day you, you do certain things. And I think that becomes even greater now because of social media. And I try to help my children and talk to them more and more. But they feel like the more likes they get, the more people approve of them. So dangerous. So, so dangerous. Toxic. Do you bow down to the authority of your own pain and your insecurities? And that's a dangerous place because when we bow down to that authority, it has nothing good to happen. Nothing good will happen in our lives because we kept hurting people over and over because that authority is the authority oftentimes of the enemy himself. What authority are you bow down to today? What authority are you surrendering yourself to? Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, he encounters Jesus and from that point on, he learns to surrender himself to the authority of Jesus Christ. I think a lot of you can say, I want to do it, but how do we do it? What do we learn in the story that allows you and I to bow down or to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? What are the things? There are a few things we learn here. The first thing that we learn is simply this. We surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ when we accept that our faith is not about us. Verse 13, verse 13. Lord, Ananias, this is when uh, God says, hey, Ananias, go to Saul. And look what he says. He goes, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to other people of Israel. Ananias basically said to God, God, do you know how dangerous this guy is? This guy's going to put me in jail. I got family. I got kids. I don't want to do this. I love, I got, a, I, got a, I got a duty to my own family. It's like, I don't want to put myself out there. This guy has not only killed people, but now he has the authority to put people in prison. I don't want to do it. And what does God say? You got to go because at the end of the day, it's not about you, Ananias. It's about me. And the quicker you and I know this, because I know internally in some ways we can agree with that, but think about how we position our relationship with God. How much of it is it about us? How much of it is about God coming and blessing our lives? How much is it about God blessing us with the right kind of job, the right kind of maid, the right kind of success, the right kind of home? How much of it is really just about us? And what we don't even know what we're doing is that somehow God becomes our servant and we become his master. Now, we'll never say that out loud, but think about how we pray and how we engage with God. Think about what we believe God should be, that he exists just to bless you and your life. And what Ananias needed to realize is that it wasn't about him. It wasn't about his safety. It wasn't about his comfort. It wasn't about his own life, but it was about God. And you and I will never get to a place where we can surrender ourselves to God's lordship Unless we realize that it's not about us. That it's not about our comfort. It's not about how much money we have or don't have. It's not about who we know, who we don't know. At the end, it's not about your limitations. It's not about how weak you think you are, how incapable you are. Because you can use that as an excuse. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. Amen. And you will not experience true life with God and have those kinds of moments, those moments that are so catalytic that will change literally the trajectory of your life when you don't submit yourself to his authority and you can't do that if you continue to make this faith in Jesus about you. And we live in such a self-centered society. Everything is about me. Our faith is a me faith kind of thing. I mean, Paul could have done that. 
I mean, Paul could have just said, what? I put people in prison for the gospel message. Now you want me to go out and proclaim the message that I put people in prison for? Surely they're more qualified people than me, God. Remember, I just became a Christian. I can't do this. And Paul learned that it was not about him. And that's the secret, I think, to our faith in Jesus today. Because when we make it so much about us, we become these spoiled saints because we feel that there are certain things that God needs to do to work in our lives in a certain way rather than just submitting ourselves and saying, you are God and I'm just going to let you do whatever you want, God. See, God loves that posture. We have to learn to do it. It's not just about you. How many times have we talked ourselves of not doing certain things because we just are afraid to? We look at our own human limitations. We look at our own issues and all these different things. And we realize, we look at our own pain. We say, well, I've been so hurt, I can't do this. But at the end, we have to realize it's not just about us. It's about God. Our faith in Jesus Christ is not just so that God will bless us, so that we can be a blessing, so that we can rise up and be a kingdom builder by establishing the very kingdom of God here on earth. That is our vocational mission that God has given the responsibility of every single one of us in this room. Can I get an amen? Amen. It is for every single one of us, and we're trying to do that to the best we can here at Metro Community Church. That's why we come here. We don't just come here so that you can leave here and say, well, I felt really good today about Jesus Christ. God is so good. Woo, I needed that today. Well, I hope you experienced that, but the reason why we're a church today is so that we can go and equip ourselves to be a kingdom builder and allow people in this world to experience and taste a little bit about what God's love is about. And the quicker you and I say, well, then it's not about me then. It's about you, God. And so I'm going to position and align my life so that can happen. The quicker you will understand the joy that that comes when we surrender ourselves to the very lordship of Jesus Christ. People today outside the church are not impressed by American Christians. They're just not. And the reason why is because we're not surrendering ourselves to God's worship. We make our faith just about us. And so we're just as sensitive as those people that, aren't, that don't go to church. We get hurt just like them. We're unwilling to forgive just like them. If somebody hurts us, we're not going to forgive them. What makes us different than with them? We judge, we, we get angry, we talk, we gossip, we get jealous. What is our difference as Christians than those who don't believe in Jesus? There needs to be a major dichotomy between Christians and non-Christians in our character and our pursuit and our integrity, and it needs to count, but it won't count if we don't surrender ourselves to God's lordship and we realize that it's not about us. It's not about us. Eugene Peck is a member of our church. He's been coming out for a while, and I got to know him uh, many years ago, and uh, there he is, there he is. Good looking Korean dude, man. He was very popular in Africa. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, he's an acupuncturist and he's really good. About 18 months ago, his brother died of a tragic motorcycle accident, younger brother, a brother that he loved dearly. And I would say those eight, the last 18 months has been hell and back for him. About a year ago, as I've been meeting up with him regularly, I said, hey, Eugene, um, you wanna come out to Africa with me? in about a year's time, I think you might experience some healing out there. And uh, he didn't even flinch. He said, I wanna go. Uh, You know how sometimes when somebody says they wanna go, you don't know if they're really gonna do it, it's just maybe lip service. So I wasn't sure if he was gonna go, but every time I brought it up, he said, I'm going, I'm going, and he did. 
you know, he's an acupuncturist, so uh, I thought perhaps maybe he can go out and, and go into the villages and uh, do acupuncture to the people in KwaZulu-Natal, you know? So I, I just, I called Audrey, who's the executive director of Zameli Way too, and I said, hey, Audrey, uh, do you think the women would be open to receiving acupuncture from Eugene? And she said, I don't think so. <laughs> they don't know what acupuncture is. And they're, they're going to be afraid of needles. And she said, well, maybe I could be the guinea pig. Like, I'll let Eugene treat me in front of the women, and perhaps maybe they'll be open to it, right? Maybe some people on my staff would. The one on, on Eugene's right is Mazuma. And Mazuma said, no, 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 she's not going to do it. She's terrified of needles. So she said, no. Magita oversees agriculture. They both work for Zamele. They're both uh, rural women in Swaimani. And now they're on staff leading Zamele. And um, Mazuma works with self-help groups and cluster-level associations. I don't have time to go into detail about that. Basically trying to help women to stand on their own two feet through financial literacy. She works on that. The one on my right is Magita. She does agriculture. She basically helps people if they ever dream of being a farmer. She teaches them how to do it because the land, the soils in KwaZulu-Natal is so fertile. It's so fertile. So she teaches them. Magita, though she was afraid of the needles, she been going through a lot of issues with her body. And everyone that she works with knew about those limitations. She would always walk with a limp for about three, four years. Uh, there would be times where doctors would prescribe her painkillers and other types of medicine, none of it would work. And so their remedy would be just get off your feet for about three to five days, you need to rest because you're in too much pain. So she would do that, right? And she said it would never really work. The doctors recommended surgery, thinking that that might ha work out. And she is not about, you know, she's a rural woman in South Africa. She's not going to get surgery. She's not going to let some doctor take a knife and start cutting her up. Amen. And so when she heard that Eugene was coming, though she was afraid, she didn't have a choice because she was in so much pain. And so she said, well, perhaps maybe I'll let this guy do this and maybe it'll work. And so she volunteered to be the guinea pig. And so we went, into the, we went into the community, and she laid down on a bed, and Eugene put about 80 to 85 needles in her whole body, right? And uh, there are some pictures, and, and this was a different thing, but, but she did. And then after it was done, he says, how do you feel? And she goes, I don't know. And he's like, well, sleep on it. You might feel better tomorrow morning. Well, we go to the Zameli office the next day, and this woman, her face, her complexion, everything about her is different. And she, and these are her words, these are my words. She goes, this is a miracle. She just explained everything that I just told you. The doctors are recommending surgery. They told her to get off her feet. She can't walk. She limps all the time. She goes, look what I can do. She's like, start touching. She started lifting her legs up. And then she was watching me walk up the stairs. And she was walking up the stairs with a strut, man, just walking up those stairs. Like she owned those stairs, man, walking up those stairs. Like it doesn't even hurt anymore. And she said, um, in her words, she goes, I believe I could fly. I believe I could fly. Now, she became a raving fan. And so the next village we went into, there was a waiting line. A huge, it was like a triage. We couldn't believe how many people were in there. I was overwhelmed. I said to Eugene, I was like, you can't be here by yourself. Because the other, you know, we went, the group went and they went to go look at certain things, like a, different types of groups. And I said, you want me to be here to be your assistant? I'll help you with, I can't put needles in, but I can at least give you needles. I can give you things you need. So let's do it. It was a triage center. It was like four beds we just put up. And th there it is. Like that's on the floor. And there's another room. There's 
four beds, and he's treating as many people as he can, maybe about 20 to 25 people he treated that day in just about a span of about 90 minutes to two hours. He was exhausted. He was sneezing. He was getting sick because he wasn't sleeping. He was still jet lagged. And I just said to him, I said, you got to take it easy, man. You're going to get really sick. And he looked at me, and he goes, no, I will not. I didn't come here to not get sick. I came here to do whatever I can to help these women. And he said, I will not stop. And he kept going. We, he had to eat lunch. He didn't go eat lunch. More women came and he treated them. And Megita, my gosh, she wanted two, three more treatments because it just felt so great. She kept doing it. And then Mama Zuma, who didn't want to do it, now is saying, now you got to treat me. You got to treat me. So he had to treat her. He treated people every single day. And yes, he treated us Americans as well because I had people coming from all over the country. And he treated every single day. And there were moments where I just said, you got to relax. You got to stop. It's too much. And he said, I will not stop. Amen. He said, it's not about me. It's not about me. And then at the last night, we all kind of shared like our highlights of the trip. And it was his turn. And he said that this week, treating these women was one of the happiest moments in his life. Amen. That's what he said. I believe many of you are depriving yourself of the happiest moments in your life. Why? Because you're making it all about you. When you can learn to make it about Jesus, and not think about your body all the time. I mean, you got to think about it, but not think about it all the time that it prevents you from doing things. When you stop thinking about your comfort and your security and all those things, when you can just say, it's not about me, it's about you, Jesus, and I'm going to do it, you'll experience peace, joy, hope that you never thought you could. And so Paul realized this, and he realized that it was not about him, that he would do whatever God is calling him to do. So Metro Community Church, it's not about you. Stop making it about you. Because if you continue to make it about you, then your faith in God is very finite and limited, and you only serve the God of the possible then. If you want to serve the God of the impossible, and you want to serve an infinite God, it cannot be about you. It's got to be about him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Second thing that we have to do in order to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and how we do that is when we make intentional time and space for God. When you and I make intentional time and space for God. Look at verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The reason why he was blind was God had to blind him because if he didn't blind him, he probably would have went found the nearest synagogue and started talking about what happened to him. And what God was doing was teaching him he's a very important truth that he doesn't want him to just do things for him, but he wants him to be. See, we are human beings, Metro. We're not human doings. And so Saul for three days was blind. And what was he doing for those three days? He fasted and he prayed. Two beautiful, beautiful spiritual practices that he centered his life around so that he can connect with God. Please, Metro, understand that when you and I think about making time and space for God, a lot of us, we grew up in tra traditions where spending time with God became a to-do on our list. Right? right? You got to pray, got to read the Bible, got to maybe journal. I go to church on Sunday, got to serve once in a while. It becomes a to-do list. And listen, if God becomes a to-do list, you're in big trouble. You really are. Because when you don't do it, you feel less, sir, in front of God. See, the enemy loves to make God a to-do list for you. It's a to-want list. It needs to be transformed into that, right? 
my wife and I, when, when I'm in town and uh, we go on dates every Friday nights, we're at a stage in our life where our kids are older and they go to youth group on Friday nights. Man, it is awesome. They're out of the house. And so it's just the two of us. It is awesome. It never, I'm just going to be honest. I hope it's not for her, but it's never a to-do thing that we do in the week. It's something that we want to do, Amen. that we want to sit down and we don't do anything crazy. We go out to dinner. We try out new restaurants. One of our things, let's try out different restaurants that we haven't tried. We sit down and gaze into each other's eyes. <laughs> she looks at my baby browns. I look at her baby browns. So, you know, Asians got brown eyes. And, uh, and we just talk, we laugh, we make fun of each other. We talk about different things, talk about life. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to cultivate passion in our committed relationship. All of you in this room, you know commitment. You know that. You know the oath you took. And you try to live your life with that commitment. But Metro, if your relationship with your spouse has no passion, you feel like a prisoner. Prisoners are committed to their sentencing because they got no other choice. But if there's no passion, you feel like a prisoner. The passion is what's needed. It truly is what's needed. And when you and I carve out space for God, what we're doing is we're making time so that God could minister unto us. My wife and I, we're making time once a week so that we can minister to one another, so that we can become more passionate towards each other. Because without that passion, marriage is tough. It's hard to even want to be married, if I'm just going to be honest with you. And without passion for God, it's very hard for you to want to stay engaged with him. And when you and I make time and space for him, hear me on this, because I know this is hard for a lot of us. And we think we can just kind of coast, and I get it. But when we don't make time and space for God, how are you going to let God minister to you? How can God actually sit and minister to you? And that's why we have to make time and space. It's not so that you can feel good about yourself. No. It's not so that one day you can go and do great things for God and be a kingdom builder. More than you being a kingdom builder, please hear me. God wants to minister to you in such a way where he can build his kingdom inside of you through his love. And as you allow him to do that, then you will begin to realize your true vocational purpose and your calling. And so will you make some time and space and stop being so legalistic about it? Because if you stop doing it for a few days and maybe just a few months, stop thinking you're a terrible Christian. Stop limiting yourself. Just get back up and engage with him. And maybe when you turn off that switch of being so legalistic about the to-do list and you make it a to-want list, that it'll be more of a natural thing for you. Right? And so could I encourage you, because I know for a lot of you, this has been a struggle for years, for decades, right? that you've really struggled to be consistent with God at some capacity. Can you sit down with one of, one of our pastors and just sit down and create a, a plan that's going to help you to engage deeper with God? Because maybe you shouldn't be reading the Bible by yourself if you've always struggled with it. Maybe that's not the right thing for you to do. Maybe you should be listening to the Bible with other people rather than, you know, you're just doing it by yourself. Maybe there's certain ways. Maybe instead of praying because you struggle to pray by yourself, maybe you should take nature walks and engage with God on nature. Hallelujah. I remember when a long time ago, Betty Hosang said that she connected with God, and this was like 10 years ago, in nature. I'm a city guy. I just thought, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I can never engage with God by looking at a tree just doesn't make sense to me. But now that I'm getting older, I don't know if it's because of age, my most powerful prayer times, that's not asking God of anything, is when I'm in nature. Amen. And that's why when I was in Africa, oh my goodness, guys, I was overwhelmed. 
because I engaged with God so beautifully in nature and connected the best I could with him in that way. So maybe there's certain things you got to just change up a little bit to engage with God deeper. But you got to make time and space because God wants to minister to you. He really does. And a lot of you need to position yourself so that he can, but you're not. And as a result of that, he really can't minister to you. And then how are you going to ever know that God is really there? When you don't let him minister to you like that, let God minister. Make some time and space. Don't make it a to-do list. Make it a to-want to do with God, all right? You are a human being, not a human doing. So make time and space for God. The third thing that you and I need to do in order for us to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is to accept suffering as a normal part or a natural part of our faith. Suffering has to become a natural part of our faith. Verse 15, verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. When we surrender ourselves to Jesus' lordship, it doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. It actually means that we're signing up and saying, you know what, it's going to be normal to suffer for him. You and I will suffer no matter what. And I've said this many times, it's so much better to suffer with a purpose than without one. And when you choose to suffer for Jesus, it's, it's a privilege. It really does. It's never easy. It's never fun. But it truly is a privilege. Paul saw it as a privilege. Look at what he says. Very words in Philippians 1.29. Here's what Paul says. He says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Why is it so important for you and I to suffer for Jesus? Look at what it says in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. This is Jesus, not us, Jesus. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could serve him from death. And he was heard because, his, because of his reverent submission. Verse eight, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Why do you and I need to accept suffering as a normal part of our faith in Jesus? Because we're gonna learn obedience when we do. You don't learn obedience when you are blessed. You learn obedience when you're suffering. You learn obedience when you know that there's a dark side into your own humanity, when you experience loss and death or hurt or rejection or failure. We enter into this dark place, and and men hit this in their 40s and 50s, sometimes even in their 30s. We hit a midlife crisis, right? Women do as well. It's not just men, but women do it as well. But we hit that midlife crisis. And, And that really what a midlife crisis is, you enter into a dark world. Your life is not what you thought it would be when you were in your 20s. You had dreams. You had grandiose dreams about your life, where you would be in your 40s. And when you actually hit 40, you're like, whoa, it's not what I thought in my 20s. And you get depressed. You get into this dark phase of life. Everything looks like people are against you. Everything seems like it's against you. You went into a dark world, and you know what happens in that? If you are following God and you submit to his lordship, you learn obedience through it. That even though your life and your desires, your fleshly desires wants to go a certain other way, that you still learn to obey the best you can. You're not going to learn obedience through blessings. You only learn it through suffering. And there's such a beautiful thing that happens when you do, when you can teach your body and your desires and your emotions that you're not going to say yes to whatever your body feels, that you're going to say yes to God regardless of what your body feels, what your feelings feel. So that means that if you're single, you say, I'm going to wait till I get married before I have sex. 
That means when you're married, you say, I'm not going to have sex with somebody else, even though they get me more than my spouse, even though they can really connect with me on an emotional level that my spouse can never do, that you're not going to do that because you're going to say yes, because you took an oath between God and you and this person in church, and you're going to honor that, even though everything about you wants to go to that person, you say no to it. That means you may have some friends that have hurt you or some people that have hurt you, and rather than sharing the hurt, you just keep it quiet. You just kind of pretend it doesn't exist. But because you're doing that, something is going on. And maybe God may want you to suffer and, and confront that person. And even though you may lose a friend or, or lose a relationship because of it, that you still do it because you know it's the right thing to do. Because it's the only path where you can truly forgive somebody for doing something that might have hurt you. Whatever it might be. It might be you pursuing a, a different career path because you're like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be this finance person. I want to do this. And, and you change, and you know that's going to alter your income bracket. It's going to change everything. And you will, you're willing to suffer that because you want to obey God in that way, whatever it might be. I want to encourage you today to accept suffering as a normal part of your Christianity. Now, I talked a lot about that a couple weeks ago. And if you want to go deeper into the topic of holy suffering, I want to encourage you to listen to that. It's on Acts chapter 8. All right, Acts chapter 8. So you have to accept suffering as a normal part of your faith. That's the third thing. And the very last thing that we have to do in order to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is to have an Ananias in our life. You need to find an Ananias. An Ananias is somebody more spiritually mature, somebody who can give you insights and help you, somebody whom you give permission to speak truth into your life. Now listen, if we don't surround ourselves with some Ananiases in our life, we're never going to learn to properly submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Paul, Saul, would not have been able to submit to the Lordship of Jesus had it not been for Ananias coming and confirming the very call that God had placed upon his life. In fact, don't ever, ever do anything for God unless an Ananias confirms it. Because sometimes we think, I'm going to take a spiritual bungee jump, and you might be the only one that feels strongly about it, but if your Ananias don't feel good about it, you better not do it. Because perhaps maybe it's just your passion and that's it. Maybe it's your insecurities. Maybe it's, it's your, 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 your unhealthiness of trying to feel like you need to feel validated in some way. Your Ananias has to confirm it. And Saul finds an Ananias, and you need to find somebody who's going to pour into you and who will challenge you and who will confront you, who will rebuke you in the most loving way so that you and I can learn to submit ourselves to the very lordship of Jesus Christ. Your Ananias will teach you that it's not about you because you actually need somebody to tell you that that, hey, man, it's not about you only. Your Ananias will hopefully keep you accountable to making time and space for Jesus so that he can minister to you. Your Ananias will help you to navigate through the rough terrains of suffering that becomes a normalcy in your Christian faith in God. And without your Ananias, you're not going to be able to go through it. Paul was suffering. He was blind. He was hungry. He was fasting. He was praying. And Ananias came and gave him deeper meaning to his suffering and allowed him to go through it and to do it well. We need to find an Ananias in our lives. And I hope that you will as well. I hope that you will as well. I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't for my Ananias. I have two Ananias in my life. Um, they're much older than I am. And one of them is Pastor Kevin Butcher. You guys know who Kevin Butcher is? Do we got a picture? He was here back in June. He preached at our church and did our family retreat. And I'm happy to report to you he's going to do our family retreat next June again. And so I hope for many of you will, will come and be a part of it. But then he also did the singles retreat back in November. Well, I really connected with him last June. And I said, would you be my Ananias? Would you be my spiritual father? And he took it very seriously. And so he said, absolutely, he will. 
And so um, uh, I, I got back from Africa on Sunday, just the crazy schedule I have for the last two weeks. I got back, I was there for 10 days, and then on Monday morning, I hopped on a plane and I went to Denver for the week. I had a pastor's conference out there for a denomination. I did a couple speaking engagements out there. And uh, while I was out there, I really wanted to connect with my Ananias, with my spiritual father. And so, you know, Kevin always calls me son, and I love it. And I was like, son, let's get together. I said, yes, let's get together. And so we, he picked me up. We went to a local Starbucks, and we sat down. And he said to me, he said, son, how is your soul? I said, it is great. I'm doing awesome. Just came back from Africa, experienced God in nature. I mean, it was just awesome what God's doing out there. And the people, I brought pastors out, people out from all over the country. We just had a great time. I'm doing great. He's like, well, that's good. Then he started peeling the great layers, quote unquote, of my life to see that it's really not that great. And he started peeling these layers. He goes, how is it with your wife, Jenny? How's Jenny doing? And I said, oh, I was like, we're doing great, great. Never more intimate, never more into each other, you know? He said, you've been gone for two weeks. Has she shared that disdain with you? And I said, of course, because we're doing great. She told me before I left, I should really not do this ever again, right? I should never be away for two weeks at a time. And he said, did you listen to her? I said, yeah. He said, well, what would happen, say, a year from now, um, you decide to go to Africa again, and then this conference happens right back to back. Would you do it again? I said, probably, maybe, yeah. He said, well, you're not listening to her then. Because she told you she didn't want you to do that ever again. And he said, you know, you're just like me. Because you're this alpha male and you're a very strong personality, and because you speak for a living and I speak for a living, it's never fair for our wives that when they talk, because we talk for a living, we can always talk more eloquently than they can. And we can always make them feel lesser and not heard because we're so good at speaking. He said, your wife just told you not to do that again. And yet you might even do it again, not even in a year's time. He's like, you got to give your wife moments where she can just speak and you're quiet. And all you do is really listen to her. Listen to her and listen to what she says. It's like, shucks. I thought we were doing good. Man. I was like, all right. I was like, thank you. Thank you, Ananias. That's all I need to do now. I don't need any more advice from you. <laughs> then he goes, well, how's it with your kids? I said, well, that I can talk about. I said, we are great. We're awesome. My wife's been working so much because, you know, end of the year, she does payroll and stuff, bonuses, hires. So she's hardly home for the last couple weeks before I left. And it was just me and the three kids. I cooked. We hung out. We laughed. We did our stuff. He's like, okay. I was like, good. He said, your daughter Christina is going to college, right? And I said, yeah, she'll be going in September. Probably Rutgers. You know, she made a decision. Probably she's going to go there. And she said, well, that's great. Well, you got about seven months before she leaves the house like that. I said, yeah. She goes, what's your schedule like over the next seven months? Let me just hear it. So I told him. I told him of all my speaking engagements I have I, outside of this church. I told him of this uh, discipleship group that I call HD that I'm going to launch in early February for six months. It's from February to end of June, early July. And I told him it's pretty intensive and all that stuff. And then I talked to him about meeting up with politicians here in the city to try to connect and get the, get, get our, get the school for Metro. I shared with him the whole schedule. And this is Kevin Butcher fashion, bro. 
He takes off his glasses and he stares me in the eye with those piercing blue eyes. And then he starts crying. And I was like, but that dude cries all the time. It's all right. That's not going to affect me. You can cry. It ain't going to affect me. And then he says, Peter, when she, when your daughter Christina leaves your house, it's over. And I thought, what's over? Like, it's not over. Women, it's never going to come back. And he says, it's over. You're never going to get those seven months back, Peter. And you just share with me your schedule over the next seven months. There's no way you're going to spend adequate time with her before she goes off to college. It's over. And then he started crying even more. He started talking about his own life and how he was so caught up in ministry and how he missed for some of his own daughters that he was not able to spend time with them. And when they left the house, he said, they never come back the same because they may never come back and live with you again. They may decide to move to another state. Or even if they do decide to come back once in a while, they'll only come for vacations, but they never, they will never be the same kind of family member in your home once they leave for college. And man, that really spoke to me. And he said, why are you so busy? And I said, I don't know. And we started peeling and peeling and peeling. And, and he just helped me to see that at the end, that I have to stop putting the weight of church, the weight of being doing things for God here and even my family and trying to support and different things, that I got to stop doing those things and I got to just pay attention to the things that really matter to me. And so he says, you only have seven months. And so I said, I really do. And so I ended up emailing those speaking engagements. And I said, I can't do it. And I have one coming up in like a month. And I feel horrible about it, but I can't do it. And I said, I'm not going to do it. I emailed our discipleship group and I said, guys, I, I can't. I can't do it. I'll do it in October when she's off to school. But I, for now, I, I just can't do it. Because it takes so much out of me. As I hope you can understand. And I'm trying to live my life where I can do less, make time, but if it wasn't for my Ananias shaking me and reminding me, why is it always about you? Why is this thing, oh, life about you, just always focused on yourself? Will you open your eyes and see Jesus through your family, through your wife and through your kids? I needed my Ananias to do that. I needed him to show me that spending time with God is like spending time with them. I, I needed him to show me that if I don't do this, I'm going to suffer in vain and not for God in that way. That it's going to be a suffering that's going to be deeply painful for me. And so Metro Community Church, I don't think we can surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ without a proper Ananias. And you need to find one in your life so they can sit you down. And even though you tell them that you're doing great, they will rip off the layers of your life and your soul and teach you and show you you're really not doing that great. And that you got to stop making it about yourself. you got to start making some time for God in a deeper way. you got to accept suffering as a normal part of your faith, that those Ananias will transform your life. And when you can do that, then I do believe you will be able to soar on wings like eagle and you will be able to live this life that God has for you and for me in a way of true freedom that leads to a place of your own inner peace and your inner shalom, your inner joy. May you surrender yourself to the very Lordship of Jesus Christ May you have some Ananias to help you to do that. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And so can I give you just a moment 
to engage with God in those four areas that we just learned from Acts and how we can surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Can you go to him and confess to God and say, God, it's, I'm going to make it not about me anymore. Forgive me for making it always about me. And that you would begin to start listening to maybe what God would have you to think about. And would you say, God, you know, this week, I'm going to actually make some time and space so that you can minister to me. Because maybe it's been a while since you've allowed God to minister to you. And maybe some of you are suffering with something that God has never called you to suffer with. God will call you to suffer. But a lot of us choose to suffer in ways that God would never want us to suffer in. Maybe you can put that down. I say, God, I'm going to live for you in such a way where I will suffer for you and no one else. And if you need an Ananias, if you have one and you haven't gotten together with that person, maybe it's time to call them up and connect with them. But if you don't, would you pray and would you begin to ask God to give you wisdom to find an Ananias in your life? Somebody who is bold enough to speak truth in love to you so that you can learn to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. So I'm just going to give you a few moments to do that. Engage with God because he's here. And then I'm going to close this in prayer. So go to him. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. I've said this and shared this passage with you many times before, but it's so right right now that I share it with you today. It's for some of you, it might be the first time you ever hear it. Let's close your eyes and let these words penetrate your heart. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God, would you minister to us right now? And God, would you teach us what you taught Paul on that road to Damascus? It was a hard lesson for him to experience because he was blind for three days. But would you teach us, God, that surrendering ourselves to, to your lordship every day is the most incredibly important thing that we could ever do in our lives. And so God, would you help us to do that? And I pray, God, that we would never use excuses or our own limitations as excuses to exempt ourselves from surrendering ourselves to your Lordship. Because it even says here in Isaiah, it says that you give strength only to the weak. You increase the power of the weak. You give strength to the weary. And so, God, if there are any here today that are weary, if there are any here today that feel weak, as they surrender themselves to your Lordship, would you fill them?
with your power, with your strength, with your love, with your mercy. Watch over them. Watch over us as a church, God. Help us truly to be a community that understands the importance of surrendering ourselves to your Lordship, where we don't make it about us. We're coming here, it's not about us, but it's about us being a kingdom builder to build community, not just so that we can be happy, so that we can feel love, but to go out and to show people and be an extension of your love to others who desperately need to taste of it today. So thank you for speaking to us, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. There's some next steps that I would love for you to take. If you can just flip over your communication card, it's this white card in your bulletin or on your app. First, I'm committing my life to Jesus for the first time. If you've never done that, please check that off. We'd love to get back to you, all right? Um, uh, and go to the next table. It's the second table on my left. Uh, we'd love to give you a new believer's packet to kind of help you to grow in your faith journey. Only if you are not a Christian, you've never opened your heart to Jesus. Please do check that off. Second, you're going to surrender to Jesus' lordship by sharing a struggle with someone and having them speak truth into your life. That you would find somebody this week, perhaps in Ananias, or it might even be through the prayer partners. As people, as if you want to come up for prayer, you can share a struggle, and then we can pray for you uh, as you do that. Third, I will surrender to Jesus' lordship by carving out time and space for him this week. That you're actually going to carve it out, and you're going to connect with God. And it's not a to-do list, but it's something that you really want to do. All right? And so I encourage you to do that. Fourth, I will give to the Christmas offering. This is the last Sunday of our Christmas offering that you would give generously to it if you have not. And the last, please sign me up for the Connections Dinner on February 10th at 4 p.m. It'll be at my home. If you want to learn more about Metro, love for you to engage with it, and I'd love to connect with you and engage with you. If you're interested, on February 10th at 4 p.m., it'll be at my home. And then the last thing, it's not on your, but Sunita mentioned it earlier on. At 1.30, uh, we're going to have a meeting at the Media Center, and uh, we're going to talk more about this think tank of how do we create a, a, a community where it can be a safe place for anyone in this room who's been abused sexually. We went, I went to the last meeting, which was a couple of months ago, and I was blown away by how many people in our community have been sexually abused, whether as a child or as an adult, whatever it might be. And we need to create a community. We need to learn how we can better do that. And so even if you have not been abused, like I'm going to go, uh, I hope that you would be able to come and support and learn men. This is especially important for us that we would posture ourselves and trying to learn as well because there's a deep education that we need to go through as well. I do want to encourage you to think about joining us. Lunch will be provided.